Section 12 of Volume 1 of The Golden Bough by James Fraser Part 1 The Magic Art in the Evolution of Kings Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 5 Magical Control of the Weather. Subchapter 3 The Magical Control of the Sun. Making the Sun Shine. The rule of total abstinence which Greek prudence and pity imposed on the sun god introduces us to a second class of natural phenomena, which primitive man commonly supposes to be in some degree under his control and dependent on his exertions. Magical control of the sun. Attempts to help the sun at an eclipse. As a magician thinks he can make rain, so he fancies he can cause the sun to shine, and can hasten or stay its going down. At an eclipse, the old Chibwe's used to imagine that the sun was being extinguished, so they shot fire-tipped arrows in the air, hoping thus to rekindle its expiring light. The senses of eastern Peru also shot burning arrows at the sun during an eclipse, but apparently they did not so much to relight this lamp as to drive away a savage beast with which they supposed him to be struggling. Conversely, during an eclipse of the moon, some Indians of the Orinoco used to bury lighted brands in the ground, because, said they, if the moon were to be extinguished, all fire on earth would be extinguished with her, except such as was hidden from her sight. During an eclipse of the sun, the Kamchatkans were wont to bring out the fire from their huts and pray the great luminary to shine as before. But the prayer addressed to the sun shows that this ceremony was religious rather than magical. Purely magical, on the other hand, was a ceremony observed on similar occasions by the Chilcotan Indians of northwestern Africa. Men and women tucked up their robes, as they do in travelling, and then leaning on staves, as if they were heavy laden, they continued to walk in a circle till the eclipse was over. Apparently they thought thus to support the failing steps of the sun as he trod his weary round in the sky. Similarly, in ancient Egypt the king, as represented the sun, walked solemnly round the walls of a temple, in order to ensure that the sun should perform his daily journeys round the sky without the interruption of an eclipse or other mishap. After the autumnal equinox, the ancient Egyptians held a festival called the Nativity of the Sun's Walking Stick, because as a luminary declined daily in the sky, and his light and heat diminished, he was supposed to need a staff on which to lean. Various charms to cause the sun to shine. In New Caledonia, when a wizard desires to make sunshine, he takes some plants and corals to the burial ground, and fashions them in a bundle, adding two locks of hair cut from a living child of his family, also two teeth or an entire jawbone from the skeleton of an ancestor. He then climbs a mountain whose top catches the first rays of the morning sun. Here he deposits three sorts of plants on a flat stone, places a branch of dry coral beside them, and hangs a bundle of charms over the stone. Next morning he returns to the spot and sets fire to the bundle at the moment when the sun rises from the sea. As the smoke curls up, he rubs the stone with the dry coral, invokes his ancestors, and says, Son, I do this that you may be burning hot and eat up all the clouds in the sky. The same ceremony is repeated at sunset. The New Caledonians also make a trout by means of a disc-shaped stone with a hole in it. At the moment when the sun rises, the wizard holds the stone in his hand and passes a burning brand repeatedly into the hole, while he says, I kindle the sun, in order that he may eat up the clouds and dry up a land, so that it may produce nothing. When the sun rises behind clouds, a rare event in the bright sky of northern Africa, the sun clan of the Bukonans say that he is grieving their heart. All work stands still, and all of the food of the previous day is given to matrons or old women. 
they may eat it and may share it with the children they are nursing but no one else may taste it the people go down to the river and wash themselves all over each man throws into the river a stone taken from his domestic earth and places it with one picked up in the bed of the river on their return to the village the chief kindles a fire in his hut and all his subjects come to get a light from it a general dance follows in these cases it seems that the lighting of the flame on earth is supposed to rekindle the salt of fire such a belief comes naturally to people who by the sun clan of the Balkans, deem themselves the veritable kinsmen of the sun when the sun is obscured by clouds the lengua indians of the grand chaco hold burning sticks towards him to encourage the luminary or rather perhaps to rekindle his seemingly expired light the banks islanders make sunshine by means of a mock sun they take a very round stone called a vatloa or sunstone wind red braid about it and stick it with owl's feathers to represent rays singing the proper spell in a low voice then they hang it on some high tree such as a banyan or a cosarina in a sacred place or the stone is laid on the ground with white rods radiant from it to imitate sunbeams sometimes the mode of making sunshine is the converse of that of making rain thus we have seen that a white or red victim is sacrificed for sunshine while a black one is sacrificed for rain some of the new caledonians dreamt a skeleton to make rain but burn it to make sunshine sun charms among the american indians when the mists lay thick on the sierras of peru the indian women used to rattle the silver and copper ornaments which they wore on their breasts and they blew against the fog hoping thus to disperse it and make the sun shine through another way of producing the same effect was to burn salt or scatter ashes in the air the guarayo indians also threw ashes in the air for the sake of clearing up the clouded evening sky in Karnicabar, when it has rained for several days without stopping the natives roll long bamboos and leaves of various kinds and set them up in the middle of the village they call these bamboos rods inviting the sun to shine the offering made by the brahman in the morning is supposed to produce the sun and we are told that assuredly it would not rise were he not to make that offering human sacrifice offered to the sun by the mexicans the ancient mexicans conceived the sun as a source of all vital force and say named him ipal nemohuay he by whom men live but if he bestowed life on the world he needed also to receive life from it and as the heart of the sun and symbol of life bleeding hearts of men and animals were presented to the sun to maintain him in vigour and enable him to run his course across the sky thus the mexican sacrifices to the sun were magical rather than religious being designed not so much to please him propitiate him as physically to renew his energies of heat light and motion the constant demand for human victims to feed the solar fire was met by waging war every year on the neighbouring tribes and bringing back troops of captives to be sacrificed on the altar thus the ceaseless wars the mexicans and their cruel systems of human sacrifices the most monstrous on record sprang in great measure from a mistaken theory of the solar system no more striking illustration could be given of the disastrous consequences that may flow in practice from a purely speculative era greek sacrifice of horses to the sun the ancient greeks believed that the sun drove in a chariot across the sky hence the rhodians who worshipped the sun as their chief deity annually dedicated a chariot and four horses to him and flung them into the sea for his use doubtless they thought that after a year's work his old horses and chariot would be worn out from a like motive probably the idolatrous king of judah dedicated chariots for horses to the sun and the spartans persians and massagetae sacrificed horses to him 
the spartans performed the sacrifice on the top of mount taygetus the beautiful range behind which they saw the great luminary set every night it was as natural for the inhabitants of the valley of sparta to do this as it was for their islanders of rose to throw the chariot and horses into the sea into which the sun seemed to them to sink at evening for thus whether on the mountain or in the sea the fresh horses stood ready for the weary god where they would be most welcome at the end of his day's journey staying the sun by means of a net or string as some people think they can light up the sun or speed him on his way so others fancy they can retard or stop him in a pass the peruvian andes stand two ruined towers in opposite hills iron hooks are clamped into their walls for the purpose of stretching a net from one tower to the other then that is intended to catch the sun on a small hill in fiji grew a patch of reeds and travellers who feared to be belated used to tie the tops of a handful of reeds together to prevent the sun from coming down as to this my late friend the reverend lorimer fearson wrote to me i have often seen the reeds tied together to keep the sun from coming down the place is on a hill in la comba one of the eastern islands of the fijian group it is on the side not on the top of the hill the reeds grow to the right side of the path i asked an old man the meaning of the practice and he said we used to think the sun would see us and know we wanted him not to go down till we got past on our way home again but perhaps the original intention was to entangle the sun in the reeds just as the peruvians try to catch him in the net stories of men who have caught the sun in a noose are widely spread when the sun is going southward in the autumn and sinking lower and lower in the arctic sky the eskimos of oikluklik play the game of cat's cradle in order to catch him in the meshes of the string and so prevent his disappearance on the contrary when the sun is moving northward in the spring they play the game of cup and ball to hasten his return means like those which the eskimos take to stop the departing sun are adopted by the u negroes of the slave coast to catch a runaway slave they take two sticks unite them by a string and then wind the string round one of them at the same time they pronounce the name of the fugitive when the string is quite wound about the stick the runaway will be bound fast and able to stir in new guinea when a motu man is hunting or travelling late in the afternoon and fears to be overtaken by darkness he will sometimes take a piece of twine loop it and look through the loop at the sun then he pulls the loop into a knot and says wait until we get home and we will give you the fat of a pig after that he passes string to the man behind him and then it is thrown away in a similar case and more tomutu, a man of new guinea says son do not be in a hurry just wait until i get to the end and the sun waits the motomutu do not like to eat in the dark so if the food is not yet ready and the sun is sinking they say son stop my food is not ready and i want to eat by you either looking at the sinking sun through a loop and then drawing the loop into a knot appears to be a purely magical ceremony designed to catch the sun in the mesh but the request that the luminary would kindly stand still till home is reached or the dinner cooked coupled with the offer of a slice of fat bacon as an inducement to him to comply with the request is thoroughly religious jerome of prague travelling among the heathen lithuanians early in the fifteenth century found a tribe who worshipped the sun and venerated a large iron hammer the priest told him that once the sun had been invisible for several months because a powerful king had shut it up in a strong tower by the signs of the zodiac had broken over the tower with this very hammer and released the sun therefore they adored the hammer staying the sun by putting a stone or a clod in the fork of a tree when the australian blackfellow wishes to stay the sun from going down till he gets home he puts a sod in the fork of a tree exactly facing the setting sun for the same purpose an indian of yucatan journeying westward places a stone in a tree or pulls out some of his eyelashes and blows them towards the sun 
when the golos a tribe of the bar el ghazal are on the march they will sometimes take a stone or a, a small ant heap about the size of a man's head and place it on the fork of a tree in order to retard the sunset south african natives in travelling will put a stone in a fork of a tree or place some grass on the path with a stone over it believing that this will cause their friends to keep the meal waiting till their arrival in this as in previous examples the purpose apparently is to retard the sun but why should the act of putting a stone or a sod in a tree be supposed to effect this a partial explanation is suggested by another australian custom in their journeys the natives are accustomed to place stones in trees at various heights from the ground or to indicate the height of the sun in the sky at the moment when they pass the particular tree those who follow are thus made aware of the time of day when their friends in advance pass the spot possibly the natives thus accustomed to mark the sun's progress may have slipped into the confusion of imagining that to mark the sun's progress was to rest it at the point marked on the other hand to make it go down faster the australians throw sand in the air and blow with their mouths towards the sun perhaps to waft the lingering oil westward and bury it under the sands into which it appears to sink at night accelerating the moon as some people imagine they can hasten the sun so others fancy they can jog the tardy moon the natives of german new guinea reckon months by the moon and some of them have been known to throw stones and spears at the moon in order to accelerate its progress and so to hasten the return of their friends who are away from home for twelve months working on a tobacco plantation the Malays think that a bright glow at sunset may throw a weak person into a fever hence they attempt to extinguish the glow by spitting up water and throwing ashes at it the shuswap indians of british columbia believe that they can bring on cold weather by burning the wood of a tree that has been struck by lightning the belief may be based on the observation that in their country cold follows a thunderstorm hence in spring when these indians are travelling over the snow on high ground they burn splinters of such wood in the fire in order that the crust of the snow may not melt subchapter four the magical control of the wind making the wind to blow or be still once more the savage thinks he can make the wind to blow or to be still when the day is hot at a yakut has a long way to go he takes a stone which he has chanced to find in an animal or fish winds a horsehair several times round it and ties it to a stick then he waves the stick about uttering a spell soon a cool breeze begins to blow in order to procure a cool wind for nine days the stone should first be dipped in the blood of a bird or beast and then presented to the sun while the sorcerer makes three turns contrary to the course of the luminary the wind clan of the omahas flap their blankets to start a breeze which will drive away the mosquitoes when a haida indian wishes to obtain a fair wind he fasts shoots a raven singes it in the fire and then goes to the edges of the sea sweeps it over the surface of the water four times in the direction in which he wishes the wind to blow he then throws the raven behind him but afterwards picks it up and sets it in a sitting posture at the foot of a spruce tree facing towards the required wind propping its beak open with a stick he requests a fair wind for a certain number of days then going away he lies covered up in his mantle till another indian asks for how many days he has desired the wind which question he answers when a sorcerer near britain wishes to make a wind blow in a certain direction he throws burnt lime in the air chanting a song all the time then he waves sprigs of ginger and other plants about throwing them up and catches them next he makes a small fire with the sprigs on the spot where the lime has formed thickest and walks round the fires chanting lastly he takes the ashes and throws them on the water if hottentot desires the wind to drop he takes one of his fattest skins and hangs it on the end of a pole in the belief that by lowering the skin down the wind will lose all its force and must itself fall fugian wizards 
throw shells against the wind to make it drop. On the other hand, when a Persian peasant desires a strong wind to winnow his corn, he rubs a kind of bastard saffron and throws it up into the air. After that, the breeze soon begins to blow. Some of the Indians in Canada believe that the winds were caused by a fish like a lizard. When one of these fish had been caught, the Indians advised the Jesuit missionaries to put it back into the river as fast as possible in order to calm the wind, which was contrary. If a Cherokee wizard desires to turn aside an approaching storm, he faces it and recites a spell with outstretched hand. Then he gently blows towards the quarter to which he wishes it to go, waving his hand in the same direction as if he were pushing away the storm. The Ottawa Indians fancied they could calm a tempest by relating the dreams they had dreamed during their fast, or by throwing tobacco on the troubled water. When the Cay Islanders wished to obtain a favourable wind for their friends at sea, they dance in a ring, both men and women swaying their bodies to and fro while the men hold handkerchiefs in their hands. In Melanesia, there are are everywhere whether doctors who can control the powers of the air and are willing to supply wind or calm in return for a proper remuneration. For instance, in Santa Cruz, the wizard makes wind by waving the branch of a tree and chanting the appropriate charm. In another Melanesian island, a missionary observed a large shell filled with earth, in which an oblong stone covered with red ochre was set up while the hole was surrounded by a fence of sticks strengthened by a creeper which was twined in and out the uprights. On asking a native what these things meant, he learned that the wind was here fenced or bound round, lest it should blow hard. The imprisoned wind should not be able to blow again to the fence that kept it in should have rotted away. In South Africa, when the Kaffirs wish to stop a high wind, they call in a wind doctor who takes a pot with a spout and points the spout towards the quarter from which the wind is blowing. He then places medicines and some of the dust blown by the wind in the vessel and seals up every opening of the pot with damp clay. Thereupon the doctor declares, the head of the wind is now in my pot, and the wind will cease to blow. The natives of the island of Bibili, of German New Guinea, are reputed to make wind by blowing with their mouths. In stormy weather, the Bogadjim people say, the Bibili folk are at it again, blowing away. Another way of making wind, which is practiced in New Guinea, is to strike the windstone lightly with a stick. To strike it hard would bring on a hurricane. So in Scotland, which is used to raise the wind by dipping a rag in water and beating it thrice on a stone, saying, I knock this rag upon this stone, to raise the wind in the devilist name. It shall not lie till I please again. Raising the Wind At Victoria, the capital of Vancouver's island, there are a number of large stones not far from what is called the battery. Each of them represents a certain wind. When an Indian wants any particular wind, he goes and moves the corresponding stone a little. Were he to move it too much, the wind would blow very hard. The natives of Murray Island and Torres Straits used to make a great wind blow from the south or east by pointing coconut leaves and other plants at two gigantic boulders on the shore. So long as the leaves remained there, the wind sat in the quarter. But significantly enough, the ceremony was only performed during the prevalence of the southeast monsoon. The natives knew better than to try to raise a southeast wind while the northwest one soon was blowing. On the altar of Flatter's Chapel in the island of Flatterhuan, one of the Hebrides, lay a round bluish stone which was always moist. Wind-bound fishermen walked sunwise round the chapel and then poured water on the stone, whereupon a favourable breeze was sure to spring up. In Gaiga, an island off the western coast of Argyllshire, there is a well-named Tilbury Rath. 
Boothaig, or the Lucky Well of Bethag, which used to be famous for its power of raising the wind, and lies at the foot of a hill facing northeast near an isthmus called Tarbat. Six feet above where the water gushes out, there is a heap of stones which forms a cover to the sacred spring. When a person wished for a fair wind, either to leave the island or to bring home his absent friends, this part was open with great solemnity. The stones were carefully removed and the well cleaned with a wooden dish or a clam shell. This being done, the water was thrown several times in the direction from which the wished-for wind was to blow, and this action was accompanied by a certain form of words which the person repeated every time he threw the water. When the ceremony was over, the well was again carefully shut up to prevent fatal consequences. It had been firmly believed that if the place left open, a storm would arise which would overwhelm the whole island. The Estonians have various odd ways of raising a wind. They scratch their fingers or hang up a serpent or strike an axe into a house beam in the direction from which they wish the wind to blow, while at the same time they whistle. The notion is that the gentle wind will not let an innocent beam or even a beam suffer without coming and breathing softly to assuage the pain. Winds Raised by Wizards and Witches In my bog, an island between New Guinea and Australia, there were men whose business was to make wind for such as wanted it. When engaged in his professional duties, the wizard painted himself black behind and red on his face and chest. The red in front typified the red cloud of morning. The black represented the dark blue sky of night. Thus arrayed, he took some bushes, and when the tide was low, fastened them at the edge of the reef so that the flowing tide made them sway backwards and forwards. But if only a gentle breeze was needed, he fastened them nearer to the shore. To stop the wind, he again painted himself red and black, the latter in imitation of the clear blue sky, and then, removing the bushes from the reef, he dried and burnt them. The smoke as it curled up was believed to stop the wind. Smoke, he'd go up, and him clear up on top. In some islands of Torres Straits, the wizard made wind by whirling a bull roar. The booming sound of the instrument probably seemed to him like the roar or the whistling of the wind. Amongst the Kurnai tribe of Gippsland and Victoria, there used to be a noted raiser of storms who went by the name of Bunchil Krora, or Great West Wind. This wind makes the tall center trees of the Gippsland forest rock and sway so that the natives could not climb them in search of opossums. Hence the people were forced to propitiate Bunchil Krora by liberal offerings of weapons and rugs whenever the treetops bent before a gale. Having received their gifts, Bunjil Kura would bind his head with swaves of stringy bark and lull the storm to rest with a song which consisted of the words Where String West Wind, repeated again and again. Apparently the wizard identified himself with the wind and fancied that he could bind it by tying string round his own head. The Kwakutu Indians of British Columbia, as we have seen, believe that twins can summon any wind by merely moving their hands. In Greenland, a woman in childbed and for some time after delivery is supposed to possess the power of laying a storm. She is only to go out of doors, fill her mouth with air, and coming back into the house, blow it out again. In antiquity there was a family at Corinth, which enjoyed the reputation of being able to still the raging wind, but we do not know in what manner its members exercise useful function, which probably earned for them a more solid recompense winds than mere repute among the seafaring population of the Innsmouths. Even in Christian times, under the reign of Constantine, a certain Sopater suffered death at Constantinople on a charge of binding the wings by magic, because it happened that the corn ships of Egypt and Syria were detained afar off by calms or headwinds, and the rage and disappointment of the hungry Byzantine rabble.
An ancient charm to keep storms from damaging the crops was to bury a toad in a new earthen vessel in the middle of the field. Finnish wizards used to sell wind to storm-stayed mariners. The wind was enclosed in three knots. If they undid the first knot, a moderate wind sprang up. If the second, it blew half a gale. If the third, a hurricane. Indeed, the Estonians, whose country is divided from Finland only by an arm of the sea, still believe in the magical powers of their northern neighbours. The bitter winds that blow in spring from the north and northeast, bringing aug and rheumatic inflammations in their train, are set down by the simple Estonian peasantry to the machinations of the Finnish wizards and witches. In particular, they regard with special dread three days in spring, to which they give the name of Days of the Cross. One of them falls on the eve of Ascension Day. The people in the neighbourhood of Felin fear to go out on these days, lest the cruel winds from Lapland should smite them dead. A popular Estonian song runs, Wind of the Cross, rushing and mighty, heavy blow of thy wings sweeping past. Wild wailing, wind of misfortune and sorrow, wizards of Finland ride by on the blast. It is said too that sailors, bedding up against the wind in the Gulf of Finland, sometimes see a strange sail, have in sight astern, and overhaul them hand over hand. On she comes with a cloud of canvas, all her studding sails out, right in the teeth of the wind, forging away through the foaming billows, dashing back, the spray and sheep from her cut water, every sail swollen to bursting, every rope strained to cracking, then the sailors know that she hails from Finland. Enclosing the winds in knots, bags and pots. The art of tying up the wind in three knots, so that the more knots are loosed, the stronger will blow the wind, has been attributed to wizards in Lapland, and to witches in Shetland, Lewis and the Isle of Man. Shetland seamen still buy winds in the shape of knotted handkerchiefs or threads from old women who claim to rule the storms. There are said to be ancient crones in Lerwick, now who live by selling wind. In the early part of the 19th century, Sir Walter Scott visited one of these witches at Stormness in the Orkneys. He says, We clomb by steep and dirty lanes, an eminence rising above the town, and commanding a fine view. An old hag lives in a wretched cabin on this height, and subsists by selling winds. Each captain of a merchantman, between jest and earnest, gives the old woman sixpence, and she boils her kettle to procure a favourable gale. She was a miserable figure, upwards of ninety, she told us, and dried up like a mummy. A sort of clay-coloured cloak folded over her head, corresponded in colour to her corpse-like complexion. Fine light blue eyes, and nose and chin that almost met, and a ghastly expression of cunning gave her quite the effect of a Kate. A Norwegian witch has boasted of sinking a ship by opening a bag in which she had shut up a wind. Ulysses received the winds in a leather bag from Aeolus, King of the Winds. The Motamutu in New Guinea think that storms are sent by an old bull sorcerer. For each wind, he has a bamboo which he opens at pleasure. On the top of Mount Agu in Togo, a district of German West Africa, resides a fetish called Bagba, who is supposed to control the wind and the rain. His priest is said to keep the winds shut up in great pots. Frightening, driving away, and killing the spirit of the winds. Often the stormy wind is regarded as an evil being who may be intimidated, driven away, or killed. When the darkening in the sky indicates the approach of a tornado, a South African magician will repair to a height whither he collects as many people as can be hastily summoned to his assistance. Directed by him, they shout and bellow in imitation of the gust as it swirls roaring about the huts and among the trees of the forest. Then at a signal, they mimic the crash of the thunder, 
after which there is a dead silence for a few seconds then follows a screech more piercing and prolonged than any that preceded dying away in a tumultuous wail the magician fills his mouth with a foul liquid which he squirts in defiant jets against the approaching storm as a kind of menace or challenge to the spirit of the wind and the shouting and wailing of his assistants is meant to frighten the spirit away the performance lasts until the tornado either bursts or passes away in another direction if it bursts the reason is that the magician who sent the storm was more powerful than he who endeavoured to avert it when storms and bad weather have lasted long and food is scarce with the central eskimos they endeavour to conjure the tempest by making a long whip of seaweed armed with which they go down to the beach and strike out in the direction of the wind crying taba it is enough once when northwesterly winds had kept the ice long on the coast and food was becoming scarce the eskimos performed a ceremony to make it calm a fire was kindled on the shore and the men gathered round it and chanted an old man then stepped up to the fire and in a coaxing voice invited the demon of the wind to come under the fire and warm himself when he was supposed to have arrived a vessel of water to which each man present had contributed was thrown on the flames by an old man and immediately a flight of arrows sped towards the spot where the fire had been they thought that the demon would not stay where he had been so badly treated to complete the effect guns were discharged in various directions and the captain of a european vessel was invited to fire on the wind with cannon on the twenty first of february eighteen eighty three a similar ceremony was performed by the eskimos at point barrow alaska with the intention of killing the spirit of the wind women drove the demon from their houses with clubs and knives with which they made passes in the air and the men gathering round a fire shot him with their rifles and crushed him under a heavy stone the moment that steam rose in a cloud from the smouldering embers on which a tub of water had just been thrown confronting the storm with swords and drums in ancient india the priest was directed to confront a storm armed to the teeth with a bludgeon a sword and a firebrand while he chanted a magical lay during a tremendous hurricane the drums of kaduma near the victoria nyanza were heard to beat all night when next morning a missionary inquired the cause he was told that the sound of the drums is a charm against storms the sea dyaks and cayennes of borneo beat gongs when a tempest is raging but the dyaks and perhaps the cayennes also do this not so much to frighten away the spirit of the storm as to appraise him of their whereabouts lest he should inadvertently knock their houses down heard at night above the howling of the storm the distant boom of the gongs has a weird effect and sometimes before the notes can be distinguished for the wind and rain they strike fear into a neighbouring village lights are extinguished the women are put in a place of safety and the men stand to their arms to resist an attack then with a lull in the wind the true nature of the gong beating is recognised and the alarm subsides attacking the whirlwind with weapons on calm summer days in the highlands of scotland eddies of wind sometimes go past whirling about dust and straws though not another breath of air is stirring the highlanders think that the fairies are in these eddies carrying away men women children or animals and they will fling their left shoe or their bonnet or a knife or earth from a molehill of the eddy to make the fairies drop their booty when a gust lifts the hay in the meadow the breton peasant throws a knife or a fork at it to prevent the devil from carrying off the hay similarly in the estonian island of Orsel, when the reapers are busy among the corn and the wind blows about the ears that have not yet been tied to sheaves the reapers slash at it with their sickles the custom of flinging a knife or a hat at a whirlwind observed alike by german sylvanian and estonian rustics 
they think that a witch or wizard is riding on the blast and that the knife if it hits the witch will be reddened by her blood or disappear altogether sticking the wound it has afflicted sometimes estonian peasants run shrieking and shouting behind a whirlwind hurling sticks and stones into the flying dust the lengua indians of the grand chaco ascribe the rush of the whirlwind to the passage of a spirit and they fling sticks at it to frighten it away when the wind blows down their hearts paguans of south america snatch up firebrands and run against the wind menacing it with the blazing brands while others beat the air with their fists to frighten the storm when the Goyukurus are threatened by a severe storm, the men go out armed, and the women and children scream their loudest to intimidate the demon. During a tempest, the inhabitants of a Bata village in Sumatra have been seen to rush from their houses armed with sword and lance. The Raja placed himself at their head, and with shouts and yells they hooed and hacked at the invisible foe. An old woman was observed to be especially active in the defence of her house, slashing at the air right and left with a long sabre. In a violent thunderstorm, the bells sounding very near, the canons of Borneo have been seen to draw their swords, threatening half out of their scabbards, as if to frighten away the demons of the storm. In Australia, the huge columns of red sand that move rapidly across a desert tract are thought by the natives to be spirits passing along. Once an athletic young black ran after one of these moving columns to kill it with boomerangs. He was away two or three hours and came back very weary, saying he had killed Coochie, the demon but that coochie had growled at him and he must die of the bedouins of eastern africa it is said that no whirlwind ever sweeps across the path without being pursued by a dozen savages with drawn creases who stab into the centre of the dusty column in order to drive away the evil spirit that is believed to be riding on the blast fighting the simoon in the light of these examples a story told by herodotus which his modern critics have treated as a fable is perfectly credible he says without, however, vouching for the truth of the tale, that once in the land of the Vizili, the modern Tripoli, the wind blowing from the Sahara had dried up all the water tanks, so the people took counsel and marched in a body to make war on the south wind. But when they entered the desert, the simoon swept down on them and buried them to a man. The story may well have been told by one who watched them disappearing in battle array with drums and cymbals beating into the red cloud of whirling sand. End of section 12